1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 33. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Um, bonus points for Maria for doing everything this morning, it seems like, uh, running back and forth. Um, no, we have a community based on grace, not by works or points, but um, well done. Um, hey, if you're new, uh, my name is Jonathan. Uh, great to have you here. Um, you are particularly welcome. Um, you should have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 already. Um, we've broken this letter of Paul's into five different sections as we make our way through it. Uh, this morning we're finishing up section three, uh, the section we've entitled Joyful Denial. Um, he ends, Paul ends this section really similarly to how he begins it. Uh, so we, Joyful Denial, this section's chapter eight to chapter 11, verse one. Most scholars put that, that verse in with this uh, section, but Paul's been discussing what it looks like, what it means to to give up your freedom or to joyfully deny your rights or to lay down your rights for the sake of the other. He's ending this section really on a similar topic as how he began the section back in chapter eight. Um, he commands the church in chapter eight. You remember he commands us not to be a stumbling block to the weaker brother. Uh, for the, for the sake of the weaker brother's kind of weaker conscience. Um, and he's, he's using this example of food. They've asked him about uh, eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. So the culture of Corinth, they're this uh, kind of ancient Greco-Roman culture. They had a lot of temples uh, dedicated to a lot of different gods. And in each temple um, would, have been, would have practiced animal sacrifice, uh, sa- sacrificing animals to this god. Uh, that the temple was dedicated to. And any of the meat that wasn't uh, used up in that sacrifice was then given to the local meat market for, to be sold to the public. Um, this meant that you wouldn't really know what, if the meat that you're buying at the market has been sacrificed to idols or not. It wasn't labeled, okay, this, is, this, has been, this comes from the temple, this hasn't. Um, it's all just kind of in together. And, and Paul in chapter 8 basically says to the Christians, to the mature ones, you shouldn't really need to worry about it. Um, you should know, you should have this knowledge that, that these, these gods are not real. 
so they're, they're false gods, they're, they're idols, they're man-made gods, and there's only one real God. So Paul's point is even if the food had been like sacrificed to a so-called God, it doesn't mean anything. It shouldn't, it shouldn't worry you. Um, but he says in chapter 8 that there might be times when you, when you may need to kind of lay aside your right for the sake of your, your weaker brother who has a weaker conscience around uh, such things. He says, don't be a stumbling block to them. He actually uses the word destroy. Don't destroy them by, by exercising your right uh, to eat this meat. Um, he says, um, you might need to lay aside your right in order to build them up. This, this joyful denial, denial for the sake of your, your brother, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. And Paul goes on to explain what he means, the surrendering of your rights over the next couple chapters. And here uh, in uh, verse 23 of chapter 10 to 11, uh, 1, he's wrapping up this topic. Um, look at chapter 10, verse 31. Um, he really sums up this whole section with this one sentence. This one sentence kind of encapsulates all of what Paul's been saying. Um, he says, So, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you, whatever you do in your life, do it all for the glory of God. And I, I want to spend the first kind of half of the sermon uh, talking about that and explaining what that means. Because it's big, isn't it? Because whatever you do means your whole life. Like, it's, it encapsulates all that you do. And if all that you do through your days is meant to glorify God, it should be important to understand what that means. This idea of, of glorifying God or the glory of God, I, th- I think for us it can be a little bit confusing for two reasons. Um, firstly, because we use that phrase a lot. You'd have grown up, especially here in Northern Ireland, you'd have grown up, hey, glorify God. You've heard that over and over again. I'm sure a lot of you would have grown up being taught the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That first question of that catechism is, what's man's chief end? And the answer to that is, what's, like, man's purpose, his chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So you've, you've grown up hearing that phrase. And the second reason I think it can be kind of slippery to understand this is because the way we use the word glory in our culture, kind of, it, it, it fails to capture its true meaning. So we often use it in a negative sense. Like that, that film glorifies violence, or that person has a, a glorified sense of self-importance, um, or we'll use it in a self-directed way. No guts, no glory. Um, hey, remember the glory days? Um, I'm a big NFL fan, and they have this, this hall of fame uh, where they, they, have this, they induct members of the past, uh, these great athletes into the hall of fame, and you remember their past uh, success. They, they glorified, uh, they, they, uh, remember the glory of their, their past successes, which that, it kind of gets, starts to get close to, to glory properly defined. Glory properly defined is, is public praise, honor, and, and fame. And when you look at the Bible, um, glory in the Bible, it's not so much defined as it is uh, described. It's kind of like beauty. The, beauty is hard to sometimes define why you find this beautiful or why you find someone beautif- beautiful. It, it's, it's more described. Um, here's a couple examples. Uh, in Exodus 34, when Moses, he comes down from the mountain after talking with God, and his face just shone with glory because he's been in God's presence. This, this glory is, is described in this way. It's, it's, uh, it, this is what it looks like or what it is. Uh, in Matthew chapter 17, you have the story uh, of Jesus' transfiguration. And there, uh, 
uh, Peter, James, and John get this little peek at Jesus in his full glory, and, and you get these, these descriptions rather than definitions. So it, we're told that Jesus' face shone like the sun, or his clothes became white, like white as light. Um, you have these definitions of, of what glory is. Um, in, the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and, and that, it's a word that means something, with, something that has weight. It's this weight or heaviness. Um, and this is the way it's, it's used. Here's an example. Um, if you were to throw a rock into a pool of water, uh, the rock would make ripples in the water, and the rock would sink down to the bottom of the water. And that's because the rock has more weight than the water. It, 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 it's weightier. It has more kavod. It has more glory than the water. But if you take a hammer to the rock, well, then the hammer shatters the rock because the, the hammer has more kavod. It's, it has more weight. It has more glory than the rock. And this is how the, that word kavod, the, the glory of God, is used in the Old Testament. An example of that is, is in Isaiah chapter 6 where you get this, Isaiah has this, this vision of, of the Lord on his throne, and he gets to see God on the throne in, in all of his, his glory. And you, it's this beautiful picture where the, the, the trail, um, the, the train of, of God's robe is filling the temple. Uh, the, he's surrounded by the cherubim, and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, the whole earth is filled with his glory. It's this amazing picture. And Isaiah responds to that glory by saying, woe is me. He kind of he shrieks back and he, he says, woe is me. He says, I, I, am, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Like that's, 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 that's how kavod, that's the glory of God, that's, that's, that's what it does to us. It, is it shatters us because it's heavy, it's weighty, it's significant. It, it kind of floors us in this way. It reveals to us just how far we are from Him. So you see people falling on their face when they're in the presence of God's glory. And, but you make your way into the New Testament, and the word for glory is this Greek word doxa. It, it also kind of carries this, this, this something that is weighty and heavy, but doxa brings something even more brilliant. It conveys this idea of illuminosity, this radiating brilliant light. Something that, that shines in the middle of darkness. And this is how Jesus is described in the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this about Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. So if you want to see the glory of God, you look to Jesus and you see how radiant and beautiful he is. I think that you begin to start to get a, a deeper sense of the meaning uh, of the word glory. It's something that's heavy, but it's something that's beautiful. Glory is something that, that moves you. It's, it's something that's emotional, that's deep in character, but it's also beautiful and attractive and, and aesthetically pleasing. Um, the, was it the Oscars that we're just on? Um, these, you get these pictures of, uh, of like, the, what they have, like the red carpet. I don't watch it, obviously, but you have the red carpet that, that is rolled out, uh, limousines pull up, and these beautiful movie stars come out, and all eyes are on the movie stars. Cameras and lights are going off. And it's because they have this, this gravitas. They have this aura of glory around them at that moment. And for you, it might be that, like, that significant person in your life. Um, I still, I, I still kind of get worked up when my, when my wife enters the room. Sorry to embarrass you, but I find her attractive. I find her, 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 her aesthetically ble- pleasing and, and beautiful to me. But that's not all. 
She also has this depth of character. There's this weightiness in my heart. She's, I can't say she's heavy. Um, can't say that about your wife. But with God, it's, it's infinitely more than that. He's described in the Bible, it's, it's, it, there's this deepness, there's this heaviness, this depth of character, but he's also aesthetically pleasing. He, he's, he's heavy and he's waiting, weighty. He shatters your life because, of, uh, because he's so deep and meaningful. And yet in the New Testament, he also draws us to himself because he's so beautiful. He's, he's this light that shines and draws us, on, draws us in because of the, his glory on display in Jesus. That's glory in the Bible. What does it mean to glorify God then, to, to, to give God glory? I think you need to be careful because to glorify God, it doesn't mean we add to His glory. And we, we, we actually cannot do that. We cannot increase His beauty and His perfection. We, we cannot make Him more glorious. We're told His, his glory is, is infinite. It has no end. It starts to make our head hurt, but, but he's always existed. He's always ex- existed perfectly, gloriously, and, and everything that was created was, was created out of his fullness. To glorify God simply means to, to ascribe worth to him alone, to give honor and praise to him, to, to be most concerned with his fame, with lifting him up. If to glorify is to, is to light something up brilliantly, then we are to make it our goal in life, uh, to, to light up Jesus with our lives, to, to make him famous, to give him honor and, 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 and fame. We glorify him in this way. And, and Paul is saying in verse 31 that, that we are to do this with our entire lives, with everything that we do, whether you are eating or drinking, even these, these menial um, uh, um, acts in our life, your aim should be to, to glorify God as you do it. To, to, to light him up, to make him famous, to, to point others to him. And listen, because of our sinful nature, we're awful at this, aren't we? Like, we, we shouldn't be because it's actually, the, it's actually why we were created. It's what we were created for. So in Genesis 1, we're told that we were created in, in his image. So we're created, it means we are meant to, to be image bearers of God in this world. So this means that we were, we're meant to, to reveal to the world who God is. We're to show to the world. We're to point the world to Jesus. So we reflect his glory in this way. We, 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 um, we were created to glorify him, to reflect his, order, his glory, to find our joy in his glory alone, to be satisfied with his glory alone. But ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered into our hearts. We've been, we've been searching for that elsewhere. We've been trying to do that in, in, in the wrong kind of ways. Um, I find it interesting the way Paul describes sin in Romans 3.23. You all know Romans 3.23, I'm sure. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of, uh, of the Lord. He doesn't say, hey, we've all sinned because you've broken one of the Ten Commandments. Although that's true, He's saying that when you sin, you don't just break a set of rules. When you sin, you show that something else has more worth, has more value to you than God. Something else is weightier in your heart than Him. Something else is more significant, more attractive, more beautiful to you than God. It's not just breaking God's commands. It's that your identity is being found somewhere else, in something else than God. You're glorifying, you're lighting up something other than God. 
We're supposed to, to use the things of this world to glorify Him, to be image bearers in that way, but instead we use God to glorify things. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling creation. We exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God for the glory of, of creaturely things. They exchanged the, the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served creation or the creature rather than creator, this misplaced uh, ascribing worth, this misplaced sense of glory. And this is what Paul was talking about last week in, in last week's section. Things that hold more weight in our hearts than God, we call those idols. It's, it's engaging in idolatry. And anything could be this money, um, your family, your children, your, your reputation, comfort, anything in your life can, that, that, that is weightier to us than God is, is an idol. These things that we lift up and we, we glorify more than we glorify God, more than we lift Him up. The glory of these things shine more brightly to us than God's glory. Do you glorify God in everything that you do? Do you give Him praise and honor and fame in every decision you make when you eat, when you drink? Is God so weighty and so glorious to you that even in the most mundane activities, the shape of your life is to, is to make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around you. And this is where we often make this crucial mistake of, of compartmentalizing our lives. We, we compartmentalize our lives into normal life and, and, and uh, glory-aimed activities. So we, we, we kind of confine glory-aimed activities to devotion and, and, and public worship. So, so giving praise and honor, worshiping God, yes, I do that because I go to church on Sunday, because I, I, I engage in our weekly worship service, or hey, my missional community meets on Tuesday nights and we gather together and we talk about Jesus, we, we glorify Him in that way. And then outside of that, I, we, we go to work, um, we, we play, we, we do whatever else we do outside of the glory-aimed activities. And can I be honest here? Um, I wonder if sometimes the way we talk about the church gathered can confuse, can, can, can add to that problem. Here's what I mean by that is sometimes we talk so highly about the church gathered that, that like the church gathered is, is incredibly beautiful and, and, and it's incredibly important. And if, you, if you've been around here for, for a while, you understand that we believe that, that the, the dwelling place of God's spirit is with his people. And the, the church is these, these living stones being built together to be this spiritual house, the, 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 the place where God abides. It's so, it's so beautiful, it's so amazing, it's so important. And I, listen, I don't want to make it any less important than that because it's important to God. Like Hebrews says, don't neglect to, to meet together, gather together, it's important. But we need to be careful the way we talk about the worship gathering and ordinary life. We don't want to elevate the worship gathering so much that in turn we downplay the importance and the significance and the potential for all of life to be glory aimed. God wants all of our life to be dedicated in worship to Him. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Paul's reminding us again 
um, that it's important to understand that, that giving glory to God is not just a vertical thing between you and Him. It also, is, it also includes the horizontal in your life, the, um, the, between you and your neighbors and your communities. God wants your piety, He does. Um, he wants your, your worship gatherings. He, he wants your, your spiritual disciplines. He wants your quiet time. He wants your prayer and your Bible reading, but he wants so much more than that. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Remember the context that he's telling them this in. He's in this section where he's, he's, answering, the, he's answering their questions about what they can and cannot do as Christians. What are their rights? What are they free to do? Specifically for them, they're asking him about this, this idol-sacrificed meat. Can we eat it? Are we free to do that? And Paul, what he's doing is he's, he's helping them uh, wisely navigate through the gray areas of life. So the gray areas of, of life are the, the uh, it's gonna be about 95% of our day, things that the Bible doesn't specifically speak to. The Bible doesn't specifically command you to do this or, 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 or say don't do this. That's most of your day. And Paul's helping us navigate these gray areas. For them, it's this idol sacrifice food. What do we do about that? And what's interesting about Paul's answer is he doesn't answer them based on what the individual should or shouldn't do. He, he bases his answer based on what will glorify God and what is good for your neighbor. So in a way, he's kind of taking you out of the situation. It's not about you, he says. It's about what's good for your neighbor and what's glorifying to God. Paul tells us we are to glorify God in everything we do. And in this situation, he says, glorify God through loving your neighbor, through putting what's good for them at first. Glorify God by, by thinking, hey, what's best for, for the other rather than what can I do? So the, the key to these gray and maybe controversial areas in our life is to use the law of love, Paul says. To, the, the call is to think about our choices, think about our decisions, even the mundane ones. Think about them in light of what is good for my neighbor. What are, what are the far-reaching implications for my neighbor when I'm making this decision? Um, there's this fascinating parallel between what Paul is saying here and also what Jesus says in the Gospels when, when he's asked by the, by the Pharisee, hey, what's the greatest command? What's the, what's the most important bit of the law? And, and in Mark 12, he, he, he answers the, the Pharisee, he says, he kind of summarizes the whole law in, in, in this twofold response. And you know what it is. It's, it's, hey, you need to love the Lord your God with all your, your heart, uh, your soul, your mind, your strength. And equally important, you also need to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's everything, Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul's giving the same, he's saying the same thing. It's the same command. Glorify God with everything that you do and put your neighbor uh, above yourself. Think of their goods more, than, more important to, than, than yours. And in this context of, of answering questions about Christians' rights and their freedoms, Paul shows them what this looks like what it looks like to make, decision, make decisions using the law of love uh, with the goal of glorifying God and seeking the good of your neighbor. And let's look how he applies this to these gray areas. It's a question about eating idol-sacrificed meat. They have all this meat. 
Uh, they don't know if it's been sacrificed to idols or not. Can we eat it, Paul? And Paul begins by laying out this principle of glorifying God through loving your neighbor. Look at verse 23. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So that's the principle that they're to use in order to make the right decision here. Are they, hey, are they free to eat the meat? Read this. Paul says yes. You're, you're, all things are lawful. You have the freedom to partake in the meat. You have the freedom to enjoy the meat so long as it glorifies God and it's good for your neighbor. And, and he gives these two examples in the following verses to help them think through and how to apply this principle of love. First example is when, say, you go to the meat, uh, go to the meat market, you purchase meat, you bring it home to eat. The second example is what to do if an unbelieving friend invites you over for a meal and serves you said meat. Uh, and just as, just as he's been doing, uh, as he, he's speaking to two, two groups uh, in, in this section, just as he has been throughout his letter. He's addressing the legalist group, and he's addressing, addressing the licentious or the libertarian group. Um, he actually quotes the licentious group in verse 23 when he says, all things are lawful. It's in quotes. This is popular saying to them um, in their community. And basically, uh, the licentious group, they are, they, they're using this theological truth of the liberty of the gospel in our lives. They're using that to do anything and everything they want with little regard to those around them. So they're taking this, this truth uh, uh, that the gospel has set us free from the law, which is 100% true, so read, um, Paul talks about this in Romans 7, that those who are in Christ have this new way of living in the Spirit. We're no longer bound to the law. We're free from it. So in a way, now all things are lawful. He's not saying, when he says all things are lawful, this is important, he's talking about the gray areas of life. So there's, there's, there's definitely things in, in, in the Bible that we are prohibited from doing. So they're not asking, I don't like my neighbor, can I murder him? They're not asking that question because the Bible says don't murder don't cheat and lie and covet. He's talking about the, 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 the bits that um, Scripture doesn't address. And he says, yeah, all things are lawful, but he says not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So he's, he's urging them to consider um, what is helpful for their neighbor, what, what's going to build their neighbor up. Corinthian culture is, is me first, my rights, my freedom. Uh, for Paul, it's others first. And then he speaks to the legalist, who Paul, he addresses them in verse 25 and 26. And he, he says to them, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. There's no, no hesitation here. Their, their actions, in a way, were opposite from the licentious group. Um, they, didn't, they didn't fully understand uh, that, that they did have liberty in the gospel, that they are no longer bound to the law. And so they were, they're applying their strict rules and their scruples to the rest of the community. And, and by doing so, they're binding the, the conscience of their brother. And Paul addresses their error by quoting Psalm 24 when he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So this, this, this God that this meat is sacrificed isn't real. Like the, the Lord is the only real God and the, everything in the earth is, is his good gift for us to, to enjoy. He says, Relax. Eat the meat. It's good. And in the church today, they're, they're, they're still filled with these two types of people. The legalist group who just want a set of rules to go by. Just, just make it easy for me to follow Jesus. Let's make following Jesus like a clinical thing. Here's a list of do's and don'ts. Follow them. You're safe. 
And then the libertarians who say, this set of rules, it's thrown out. We're free in Christ, and, and we actually should exercise that freedom in order to glorify him. Their, their principle is based purely on freedom. My rights, my freedom. And Paul is pointing out that, that both groups are wrong. Both groups are, are, are off in their thinking, but for the exact same reason. They're both on opposite ends of this pendulum, but they're making the exact same error. See, both the legalist and the licentious are purely focused on their own good. So that's why they both need to hear what Paul says in verse 24. Stop seeking your own good. Seek the good of your neighbor. The legalist is seeking their own good while ignoring the way their approach actually is binding the conscience of, their, of, the, of the other. So their approach is, is, is in their approach, loving their neighbor is, is kind of optional. The licentious, they're also seeking their own good, but they're ignoring the way their approach is scandalizing the conscience of, of their neighbor. The word to both of them is the same. Let no one seek their own good. Seek the good of your neighbor, thereby giving glory to God. Let me explain that a bit. There's, there's, I want you to see there's three potential approaches to God and neighbor in this text. Firstly is the legalist approach. Um, this approach is an attempt to glorify God, but with no consideration or no attempt to love your neighbor. Look at verse 27. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go or you want to go, well, then go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he's, he's speaking to the legalist here, and we have this picture of this, of this unbelieving friend invites the believer over for dinner in their home, and, and they're serving a meal. They're serving like a, a roast or whatever, whatever they would have served at the time. But meat would have been a delicacy, so it's a real honor to be served this meat. And the legalist sits down at the table, the food comes out, and there's this meat, and their heart begins to race, and they're thinking, I wonder if this has been sacrificed to idols. And rather than simply receiving the meal, like receiving the offer, giving thanks to the Lord, the legalist, they hesitate, and ultimately they refuse the meal. And Paul is saying, in this situation, you are not being a good neighbor. You're not, you, you may be trying to glorify God by doing what's best for you, but you're completely ignoring the good of your neighbor. You see, loving your neighbor is, is, is optional for the legalist. And therefore, they are failing to glorify God. They're robbing God of his glory in this moment. What they've done is, in a way, they've actually pushed their unbelieving friend farther from encountering Jesus at this table. Rather than, rather than imitating Jesus, who he himself dined with sinners, he himself would have been accused of, of, of being a drunkard and a, and, a, and a glutton. They're pushing their, their brother or their, uh, their unbelieving friend farther away rather than imitating Jesus. Paul says, don't raise any questions. Just eat the meat. Be a good neighbor. Point your friend to Jesus. He's urging us to avoid that first approach, the legalist approach to God and neighbor. Then he addresses the second approach. That's the libertarian approach or the licentious approach. So we're in the same scenario as before. This unbelieving friend has invited us over. Read from 27 again. If one of the, unbelieving invi if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you want to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And you, you can almost sense the libertarian going, yes, amen. See, guys, all things are lawful. Enjoy the meat, eat it. You're free to do so. But then Paul turns to them 
And he continues in verse 28, but if someone says to you, hey, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat the meat for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So the libertarian approach is, is concerned with, with exercising their freedom. All things are lawful. And in this situation, they might even think they are, they are, doing, they are loving their neighbor, but Paul points out that no, it's actually in, in their exercising their freedom that they're actually doing their neighbor a massive disservice in this situation. Their, their actions are proving that they're, they're not actually seeking the good of their, their unbelieving friend. And therefore, they too are, un, they are uh, failing to glorify God as well. Because in this situation, the unbeliever has made an issue out of the meat. That's the difference. Before, unbeliever doesn't make an issue, enjoy. Don't ask any questions. Enjoy the meal. Enjoy your friend. Point them to Jesus. But in this situation, they have made an issue of the meat. You see, they, they are an unbeliever. That's the difference in this situation. They don't understand the gospel yet. This idea of, of Jesus dying on the cross has somehow set you free from the law. Don't understand it. Paul said in, in chapter 2, they think this is foolish. All they know is that you are a so-called follower of Jesus, that, 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 that you claim that there's only one God, and in their eyes, you're, you're sitting here partaking in a meal that has been sacrificed to a different God. They're thinking, well, I guess Christians worship Jesus, but then sometimes other gods? Or maybe they're thinking, hey, maybe this Christian actually doesn't really believe what they say they believe. You see, for them, you are reinforcing this idea that the gospel is complete nonsense, that it is foolish. That's what Paul means when he says, don't eat the meat for the sake of their conscience. Paul uses that word conscience five times in this section. It's not this like Jiminy Cricket uh, guilty conscience that you sometimes feel. The word it literally means an inward moral impression of one's actions and principles. So it's this, this, a person's inward understanding or, or theology of what is right and wrong in this situation. And Paul is saying, hey, in this situation, refrain from eating the meat for the sake of your unbelieving friend's conscience. Not for the sake of your conscience, okay? Because you understand correctly. You, you, should, you know that, that, that false gods aren't real, you know that you can eat the meat. Everything is, is in the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. It doesn't mean anything. But they don't know that. They, they don't understand that yet. Like, yes, their understanding of the situation is incorrect, but it's still what they understand. It's, it's still what they... What, it's still what they... Um, what, it's still how they interpret the, the situation, Paul says. So... In the meantime, Paul says, lay aside your right. Lay aside your freedom for the sake of your neighbor. Because just like, just like the legalist in their way pushed the unbelieving friend farther from Jesus, the licentious is doing the same in this approach. By exercising their freedom, they are scandalizing their neighbor's conscience and pushing them farther away from encountering Jesus. Both the legalist and the libertarian are concerned What's best for myself? And Paul is saying, stop being concerned with your own good and be concerned first with the good of your neighbor. 
Are you free to partake the meat? Yes. And listen, a lot of times, I think Paul would say most of the time, you partaking in the good gift is what will glorify God. But our first reaction should always be, how will this affect my neighbor? Will it build them up? Will it help them? Will this draw, draw them closer to Jesus? Brothers and sisters, you are free indeed. But in Christ, we are free not to serve ourselves, but to serve the other, to, to seek the good of your neighbor, to be concerned with the good of their own soul. So, or therefore, Paul says in 31, whatever you eat and drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Like, glorify Him. Point to Him. And in verse 32, Paul gives us this third option, and that's the gospel approach. He says, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he's, he's ending the section by repeating what he said at the start, by repeating his principle. I'm not seeking my own advantage, my own good, but that of the other. Go back to chapter 9, verse 19. Paul, he's explained what this means already. Chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And read that again. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. He says, though I myself am not under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's given up his rights and his freedom in that way. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not that I'm outside of the law of God, I'm under the law of Christ. But I did that so that I might win uh, those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. He says, I become all things to all people. Why? That, I might, that, that, that by, by all means I might save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Listen, is Paul pro-freedom? Yes. Absolutely. Like read Romans 7 and 8 sometime. Paul over and over again stresses that because of what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross, that you and I are now free. We, we are free from our bondage. There's, no, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's amazing. Set free from our bondage, no longer uh, bound to the law. Paul takes freedom seriously. But here you see the way that he uses that God-given freedom. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. It's literally I've enslaved myself to all. I've been made free, but not to serve myself, to serve others, to enslave myself to the good of the other, to my neighbor. Why? That I might win more of them. Chapter 10, verse 33, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That many will be saved. Christ has made us free not to serve ourselves, but to serve the other, our neighbor. We're to love God, we're to glorify God through loving our neighbor. And he explains how, the, how he does this again in, in chapter 10, verse 32. Give no offense to the, to the Jews or the Greek or the church. The word for offense means uh, not causing one to stumble. So he's on about the same thing again. 
Don't use your freedom. He's saying, that, listen, there's a way for you to use your God-given freedom that will actually make it harder for your unbelieving friend to know Jesus. Don't use your freedom in a way that causes others to, stum- to stumble. So instead, Paul says in verse 33, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Doesn't mean he's a people pleaser. He's trying to gain their approval. No, it means he's, he's serving them. He's avoiding being a stumbling block in their lives. He's concerned with what's good for their soul. It's this becoming all things to all, uh, to all people in order that they may be saved mentality that actually proves that he's using the law of love when making decisions concerning gray areas of life. What's best for my neighbor? What's going to build them up? What's going to draw them closer to Jesus? Not seeking my own advantage, he says. So there's this, this joyful denial is laying aside of your rights and your freedoms for the sake of the gospel, he says. It's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of, of making the gospel compelling to others so that more people can be saved, so that your, your family members, so that your next-door neighbor can, can come to know Jesus, so that more people can be brought from death to life. And for Paul, if more people are going to be saved, then he's willing to not seek his own advantage. Actually, quite often, he's willing to become disadvantaged himself, to be kind of de-glorified himself. He's willing to give up his freedom, to lay aside his rights so that others can know Jesus. We're called to make decisions in our life using the law of love. I wonder if you do that. I wonder if even the the smallest decision in your life is based on, how is this going to affect my neighbor? Is this going to bring them closer to Jesus? Or is it, how is this going to affect me? Or big decisions. We don't don't do this with big decisions. I'm thinking about going for a new job. I'm thinking about moving homes. Firstly, think, how is this going to affect my life? How is this going to be good for me? Or do you think, how is this going to build up those around me? How is this going to glorify God? We're called to use the law of love, but not just uh, in order to love others so that they feel loved. It's, it's a purposeful love. It, it's a gospel love. It's love on a mission. Loving your neighbor, seeking their good, Paul says, so that they'll be saved, so that he can win more people. Look at chapter 11, verse 1, just so we draw to a close. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So follow my example. Uh, Paul's able to to give out this call because he himself has actually lived this call in his life. So Paul's ministry is this this model for us uh, of how we can adapt to different settings in order to make the gospel of Christ compelling. But as we see in in chapter 11, verse 1, his model is actually based on someone else's model. His model is based on the accomplishments and the example of of someone greater than him, and that's Jesus. Listen, the only way that we can be moved out of our self-interest and self-centeredness and actually live lives of uh, other-centeredness, this self-giving love on a mission, the only way we can do that is to remember that we are first the recipients of God's other-centered, self-giving love on a mission in Christ. I'll say that again because it's so important. If you hear one thing today, hear this. 
The only way we can be moved out of our self-interest and self-centeredness and live lives of other-centered, self-giving love on a mission is to remember that we first are the recipients of God's other-centered, self-giving love on a mission in Christ. Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He's saying the only way I'm actually able to live this way is because Jesus first lived this way. The only reason I'm I'm able to give up my rights in order to serve others is because Jesus first gave his rights up to serve and to love me. Turn over to Philippians 2 as we end. Philippians 2, chapter 1, we see this so clearly. This is the example that Paul follows, that he tries to imitate. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Look at verse 3. He's repeating what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 10. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't be seeking your own good, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, the one who was ultimately glorified, the one who deserved to be ultimately glorified and to hold on to his rights. In a sense, he became de-glorified. He, he emptied himself. He became a servant. He humbled himself in order that we, his, his, his own enemies, might be recipients of his love. Listen, church, we are, we're gospel-shaped people. That, that means we, we, rem- we have to remember the gospel every day. We, we preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another every day. We remember what he's done for us, how he's loved us when we didn't deserve it, how he died for you when you didn't deserve it. And it's only in light of this amazing news that Jesus ultimately disadvantaged himself for us. It's only in light of that that we can then disadvantage ourselves to others. To be gospel-shaped people also means to remember that that Christ has accomplished everything for you on the cross. There's nothing else to accomplish. We have everything that we need in Him. It means He's our true source of identity. We don't go searching for, for identity elsewhere. We don't go searching for glory elsewhere or for joy elsewhere. We don't go searching for satisfaction elsewhere. We live under this banner of it is finished. It means everything between God and us has been finally made right. Our love and acceptance is secure in Him. 
We don't go searching for that love and acceptance anywhere else. And this actually frees us up to live this way properly. We, we can actually at work horizontally for others. We can serve others because God has worked for us vertically. His love begets love from us, 1 John 4. We love because He first loved us. Because everything we need, we already possess in Christ. We're now free to do everything for our neighbors without ever needing them to do anything for us. We can now actually spend our lives giving instead of taking. We can spend our lives going to the back instead of clawing our way to the front. We can spend our lives sacrificing ourselves for others instead of sacrificing others for ourselves. We're free to seek the good of our neighbor instead of the good of ourselves. Only because of Christ's work on the cross. Preach that to yourselves every day. Preach that to each other every day. This is the only way we can live lives of other-centeredness. True love for your brother. To be concerned for the good of the other over yourself because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let's stand and pray.